Opening your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12, we're going to read the first of several verses here that will set the stage, set the tone for uh, what it is we want to study tonight. Um, we're going to think through, think about the concept uh, known as counterculture. I think uh, from what I can gather, the very first time that term was ever used was 1947, uh, sort of was made more popular in the 60s and 70s. Um, to be part of a counterculture is to be part of a group of people who are attempting to challenge the prevailing cultural norms. They're attempting to challenge or to fight the trends and the ideas of a society that are sort of set and that they don't like. So it's resisting or fighting back against what's sometimes the more popular or the more numerous group, the stronger group. To be part of a counterculture is to fight against the larger class of people is generally the idea. And you know about that. You know about uh, hippies and punks and you know whatever other thing. Even cryptocurrency is known as countercultural, right? Everybody uses the normal thing, so use cryptocurrency. You're countercultural. It's just being different. It's going against the prevailing ideas because you think there's a better idea out there. Well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to look with me through Scripture and see that numerous different times, numerous different times, the Lord calls on us. The Lord commands us to be countercultural. We're starting Romans 12. This Romans 12, too, is sort of the uh, foundational idea. Do not be conformed to this world. So right away you see he says, be different than the world. Be counter to the norm of what's around. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Then there's this passage, James chapter 4, verse 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, the norm, the, the widespread, popular things that are different from the image and ideas of God. So whoever would be a friend of the world makes themselves an enemy of God. So it's not said in so many words, but the clear implication is you must be countercultural if the culture is not a friend of God. It's that simple. He keeps going. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. 2 Corinthians 6, 17, this is making a reference to, an allusion to Isaiah 52, verse 11. But in 2 Corinthians 6, 17, this is what the Bible says. Therefore, go out from their midst, be separate from them. So be separated from and different from, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. And then, once you've made yourself countercultural, once you've made yourself different and separate from them, then the Lord says, I'll welcome you. Now go with me to Ephesians 5. We'll read a longer passage here. I really would prefer uh, to read Ephesians 5, verses 3 through 14, but we won't read all of that. I just want you to note it. The greater passage here would be Ephesians 5, verses 3 through 14. We're going to start at verse 7 and just read through 11. So Ephesians 5, 7 through 11. This is what the Bible says. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Don't become partners with those who normalize sexual immorality is the context. 
don't become friends with, partners with, cohorts with those who make sexual immorality normal. Don't be partners with them. Verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that's good and right and true. And try to discern what's pleasing to the Lord. And listen to this. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. So here you go. Be countercultural against that which is darkness and evil and wicked. Don't go along with it. So we could keep going. The list could just keep you know, going and going and going. We're going to stop with that. That's enough to, to set the stage for what it is we want to think through. Sometime back, I saw an article. If I remember correctly, it was titled something like um, Christianity's Most Countercultural Virtues. And I thought that was a good title to think through. I wanted to stop and reflect and think through that. What are Christianity's most countercultural virtues? What are some of the things that you and I as Christians can do and think? What can we be that would really make us stand out and be countercultural? So again, we could have a different long list here. We could probably spend weeks and weeks on this. I've got just five things that we'll talk about really briefly. Five things on, on my list of what makes Christianity countercultural, if you will. Here's the first one. A Christian virtue that's countercultural is patience. Patience. Now that sounds, that's just, we've come to church, so you're supposed to talk about patience. No. Our world is obsessed, obsessed with real-time data and information and just constantly being inundated with more ideas and more screens and visuals and just sensory overload. We are absolutely obsessed with it. And notice I'm saying we. I'm not saying the world and y'all. I'm saying we. It's just in the air. It's part of who we are. We're so blessed with technology and power and all these different things we've got our world's obsessed with real-time info and so because we're so blessed with so much access to such powerful technology here's what happens we get trained we've been trained to expect everything now and so the the virtue of, of patience is fading and disappearing it's become increasingly hard for us to wait for anything. And I want to be the first. I'm not immune. I'm not immune to that. If the Wi-Fi goes out, I'm not happy about it. We get over. Who's with me? You don't have to raise your hand, but who's with me? You get over in the, the dead zone around Walmart. I don't like that. Get in there. Can't, I can't even text Laura. She's right there. I'm in the parking lot. We can't even communicate. We're only, you know, 200 yards from each other, but I'm in the dead zone. I can't, because I'm used to, I've been trained to be able to talk to her, communicate with her anytime, all the time, right now. And when I can't, I'm frustrated. But you see, what we're seeing here is that we've been trained. It's one of those things that if we can't have everything right here, right now, that's a problem. So being patient is countercultural. The act of trusting God and accepting the fact that some things are just simply beyond our control. Let's think about some of the things the Bible says. 
Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and patience. You know, it keeps going, but patience. If I am, if I have the Lord, if I have the Holy Spirit living inside of me and I'm exemplifying all of the things that the Lord expects of me, if I'm going to be demonstrating and exemplifying all that it is to be a part of the life of Christ, patience is going to be one of the things that's, that I'm known for. But that's just not what most are known for anymore. 1 Corinthians 13, we've been studying the book of 1 Corinthians on Sunday mornings together. We know in 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love is patience. What's expected of us, what the Lord expects of us, if we're going to be loving other people the way we want to be loving or be loved, if we're going to love other people the way the Lord loves us, we're going to be patient with other people. We're going to give people space, give them time, give them time to make mistakes, let them have opportunity to mess up and to make it right. We're going to be patient with other people because that's what love does. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. That's what we're called to do. One, one last passage, James 5. James 5 at verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now in that passage, James 5, he's saying you should develop that virtue of patience because you don't know when it is that the Lord will return. And so for us, if that means we have to live out a, a long life Continue to be patient, waiting on Him, knowing that He is coming, but on His time frame. He calls us to be patient. In a world where instantaneous gratification is the norm, patience is countercultural, and it's what we're called to be. The second Christian virtue that's countercultural is really a couple of, couple of virtues, but I'm making them into one. We're going to call this countercultural virtue just meekness and humility. Meekness and humility. They're very similar. They're not the same, but they're very similar. Because here's what's happening in our culture. Our culture is so noisy. Our culture rewards those who are the loudest, the most noticeable. The rants, the riots, the angry disruptions. These things are what are normal. These are the things we've come to expect. Our culture's noisy, and you fit in when you're noisy. Our culture, in this noise, by the noise that's being created, the racket that's being created, it's saying, hey, look at me. So this culture is also very, very focused on the self. And we are so anxious to show everyone where we are and what we're doing and what we're eating and where we're going. We're anxious to tell everyone what our opinions are on every matter, from the most trivial to the most serious. And we are encouraged to be unapologetically bold. We're encouraged to be unashamed of our behavior. Just do what you want, be what you want, and don't be sorry about it. Don't feel any shame about it. Noisily be bold and focused on the self is the mantra. Our trusted institutions like the home and the school and the church and all these things 
are less and less and less places of formation, and they're more and more and more just places of performance. We have nothing to be learned. We have no behaviors to be curved. We have only to give expression to our inner nature. That's the norm. Here's what's countercultural. Listening, learning, apologizing, admitting when you're wrong. These are the kinds of virtues that the meek and humble Christian embraces. Jesus himself would say this in Matthew 11, verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I, Jesus himself said, I am gentle and lowly in heart. In other words, Jesus said, I am meek and humble. He said, if you will walk with me in this endeavor, you'll find rest for your souls. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 5, it's the meek that will inherit the earth. To be meek is not, and we've said this a thousand times, I hope you've got it tattooed in your brain, to be meek is not to be weak. To be meek is to have strength and power that is under control. It's at my behest because I have it locked down. It's similar to, to self-control. Meekness is being able to say, I might be able to push you down. I might be able to lock you in a headlock. But that's not what I'm for. It's not what I'm about. I'm willing to quietly listen. I'm willing to say I'm sorry. I'm willing to say I've done something wrong. I'm willing to say I don't know. The meekness here, the humility here, is what Jesus calls us to. In 1 Peter chapter 5, at verse 5, the Bible says in 1 Peter 5, 5, God opposes the proud but give great, gives grace to the humble. So in verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he that is God, not self-exalted, but that God may exalt you once you've demonstrated the spirit of humility. You see, that's countercultural. The culture, the norm is have all eyes and spotlights here. Be as loud as you can. Let so many people see that you're just going to be you without any kind of shame or apologies. The Lord says meekness and humility is what I'm calling you to be. Look at who I am. Emulate me. Walk in my footsteps. And be like me. Meekness and humility. Countercultural virtues. The third one would be this. The third countercultural Christian virtue is simply having hope now again that you probably expect you come into a building like this on a night like this you assemble here we sing and pray together we're going to think about hope we're hopeful people as christians we should be but that's countercultural. that's not normal <laughs> the norm is isolation the norm is being alone and without hope a couple of years ago one of the things that was brought to mind recently was that a couple of years ago in the united kingdom they had to create the position, I think we talked about this some, they created the position called the loneliness minister. In other words, someone is an official part of the government. A cabinet position there was someone to deal with those who were depressed and suicidal and thinking through difficult things because they're just so cut off and because they've got no prospects and no hope. And so their hopeless lives are leading to, to difficult outcomes in their own lives. So government, position, government positions were created to try and help with that. Governments can't help with that. Jesus fixes that. But the norm, the, the norm here is to be in failed relationships, being skeptical of failed institutions, 
you know, fearing that the, the planet's going to be doomed and all these different things. It's just hopelessness, 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 pessimism, cynicism. But as we studied this morning from 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is alive. Jesus reigns, rules, intercedes. Jesus mediates on our behalf. And because we know for certain that he's coming back, we don't know when, but we know he is coming back. And because we know this, we live each day, each moment with hope. Hope of being forgiven, hope of spending eternity in the presence of God. This is what the Bible says. Romans 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. So in a world that is just so full of hopelessness, in a world where it's so normal and so common to be with, devoid of hope, the Lord says, my desire for you is to be just abounding in hope. Jesus Christ, 1 Timothy 1.1, 1, 1, He is our hope. Titus chapter 1, verse 2, the Bible says that we have the hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages even began. That's great. Amen. And that offers something that only the disciple of Jesus can have, only the Christian can have. In a world where it's normal to feel more and more and more isolated and cut off and hopeless, the Lord says, my people abound in hope. My people are different. It's countercultural. Two more and then we'll be done. Number four on the list, the countercultural virtue of Christianity is this commitment to other people. Commitment to other people. Now you think, wait a minute, I thought our culture was all about other people. As we said earlier, this, this world is so, so focused on self, it's so self centered. Now, here's the confusing part because I know that many of the modern slogans sound like they're others focused, like this one. Be kind. Now, on the face of it, that sounds so good. In fact, it's scriptural. But as a modern cultural slogan, be kind really just seems, means this. Be kind to me and give me what I want. So when I say be kind, all I really mean is whatever self-feeling, um, whatever idea comes up, you let that go. You be kind to me. That's what be kind means. And here's, here's the deal with that. Living for others is difficult, but it's what Christ called us to do. I'm reminded again, I, I shared this on a Wednesday night not long ago, but um, the kicker for the Kansas City Chiefs, his name is Harrison Butker. He has now been the kicker for two Super Bowl winning teams. He's a two-time Super Bowl champion. And so just recently, he was asked to come back to his alma mater, Georgia Tech, and he offered the, the graduation speech there at Georgia Tech. And among many things that he said, it was a great, great speech. You should go back, look it up online, read it. But among other things, what he said is, if you want to be a rebel, you want to be somebody who's different from the people around you, different from the world around you, he said, then stop living for yourself. Stop being someone who only cares about yourself. And he said this, go get married. That's what he said. He said, the ring that I have here is more important than any of my Super Bowl rings. Now, here's what he meant by that. He didn't think you actually have to be married to be a good person. He just means this. Be committed to other people. Be committed to other people is what he was thinking. And that is a great, great idea. That really is countercultural, to be committed to other people. 
rather than just only thinking about self, self, self all the time. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant to your, than yourselves. And then here's the way Peter would say it in 1 Peter 3.17, love the brotherhood. Now he says several things in that verse, but right there in the middle of it, he says, love the brotherhood. In other words, be committed to the church that Jesus purchased with his blood. Be committed to other people. Be committed to something bigger and better than just yourself. It's countercultural to be committed to others. And here's the last one. Here's the last thing I want us to think about. The countercultural virtue of Christianity is in this. Our commitment, not just to others, but our commitment to worship. Our commitment to worship. You know, we come together on a night like this because we are committed to the Lord. And so we seek to praise and honor and glorify his name. But because we are committed to the Lord, that means that we're also committed to worship. We're committed to, to gathering in a place together. Because we know that we can pray in other places. We can sing in other places. But we gather here together intentionally to worship because we're committed to it. And that makes us strange. And as each day and week goes by and all the naysayers and the doomsday studies come out about how religion is shrinking and it's less and less important and the nuns are growing and all of that, it's countercultural to be committed to worship. But that's not a new thing. I want to remind you of something. Every now and then it does my own heart and mind good to... Uh, Remember what happened way back in the year 112, 112, 112 AD. There was the governor of Bithynia. His name was Pliny, Pliny the Younger. He was the governor of a place that's modern-day Turkey, and he wrote a letter to Emperor Trajan there in Rome. I know you've heard it before. I've shared it with you before, so it shouldn't be new to you, but it should encourage you to remember this is not the only time that God's people have been committed to worship and been seen as weird because of it, been persecuted because of it, well, here's the deal. Pliny was bringing people who were accused of being Christians. That's all they were accused of. They weren't accused of murder. They were accused of being Christians. And so he would bring them in. Are you a Christian? If they said yes, he would interrogate them more and give them another chance. If they said yes a second time, he'd interrogate them more and give them a third chance. If they said yes, I'm a Christian the third time, he said, okay, off with their heads. Take them out and they're executed. This is what he would have them do. He would bring them before them. He would say, okay, repeat these words and offer a prayer to these gods. If they wouldn't do it. Okay, offer a prayer to the emperor himself. If they wouldn't do that. He would say, okay, well then curse Christ. Because listen, there's his words to the, to the emperor. I would try to get them to invoke the gods in words dictated by me. Offer prayer with incense and wine to your image, emperor. And then he said this, and I would also seek to get them to curse Christ. Because listen to this, none of those things Christians could even be forced to do. So if they did any of those things, he knew they weren't Christians. If they cursed Christ or, or prayed to the emperor, he said, I know you're not a Christian. But if they refused to do those things, then he knew they were. And it, but now here's, what, here's the crazy thing about it. Here's what they were executed for. Here's what they got in such trouble for. Listen to this. The sum and substance of their fault or error 
was that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day. Hmm. Like the first day of the week, coming together to worship. They were accustomed to meet on a fixed day. Singing responsively, or responsively, back and forth. Singing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God. And binding themselves by an oath. Now listen to what they bound themselves to. Not to do a crime, but not to commit fraud, theft, adultery, or to falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. In other words, they've made a, a vow to one another to be honest and kind and good to each other. We, we promise not to injure each other. And he says, now when this was over, it was their custom to depart and then assemble again to partake of food. Now this, but just ordinary food. They weren't coming together and doing strange things and offering weird things to, to weird gods. They were just having time together. In other words, you know what they were doing? Worshiping and fellowshipping together. And for that, they were seen as so strange, so countercultural that this emperor said, you're doing the right thing by killing them if they won't recant being Christians. Now, thankfully, all people will do to us at the moment today is just say, well, why aren't you, you know, on your couch? Why aren't you at the lake? Why aren't you here? Why, why are you so committed to worship? Why is that such a big deal? Well, because I love the Lord, because my God is great, because my God is awesome, and I can't help but, but praise and magnify his glorious name. I can't help but tell him, thank you for forgiving me. I can't help but telling him, thank you for washing me in the blood of your son. I can't help but telling him, I can't wait to see you and be in your presence forever. How could I not praise him and worship him? I'm committed to worship because I'm committed to him. And that's countercultural. It's strange. About a thousand, excuse me, about 2,000 years ago, that got many Christians killed just for being those who are committed to worship. Now, you may have a, a very different list than what I've come up with here. But as far as I see it, these are some of the things, at least to get the list started, of things that are countercultural virtues of being Christians. We're blessed. We're blessed if we will humbly submit to and follow the, in the footsteps of Jesus the Christ. We have hope. And if we'll be committed to each other, committed to the Lord, committed to worship of the Lord, God has said, I have a home in heaven reserved for you. That is our hope. What a blessing. If there's any way that we can encourage you or help you on this night, if it's just praying with you, if it's studying with you, if you need to be baptized into Jesus Christ, washed in his blood, there's so many different ways we seek to help, so many different ways we want to help you be bold enough to be countercultural. And if we can help you in those ways, won't you come while we stand and sing?